Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, soften our hearts. I pray that we would be willing to hear your call to us. And Lord, I pray that the glory of our redemption would encourage us to push towards you. Amen. I uh, tore my meniscus in my left knee this week, and I'm saying this up front because I feel very gimpy. And if you wonder why I stumble and fall down, don't panic. It's no big deal. <laughs> I felt dumb saying that, but it's one of those things you go like, I can't walk without my face wincing in pain, and therefore, nothing's wrong. All is well. Something's wrong. <laughs> Nothing that you need to be deeply concerned about. That's right. No, no good story. No good story. Um, speaking of people with better knees than mine are right now, when I was teaching high school, I coached middle school soccer. And one of the things that I actually delighted in were those players who approached not just the games, but every single practice with incredible intensity. You know, there's always the people on the team that I had to coax and persuade and prod to care just a little bit. But there are those few who they see this goal, and it may just be the love of the game itself. It might be the desire to win. It might be the desire to be the best on the team. But they see this goal, and they say, I will go 100% at every single moment. Those particular people were always a joy to me, as they are to any coach. They display in that little analogy a spiritual truth, and it's one that the Bible uses athletic language for in a number of instances. This idea that we would have a single-minded pursuit of a single goal and that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to get to it. You hear that sort of mentality from Paul in Philippians 3. when he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on towards what lies ahead, I reach for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This sense of I drop everything to pursue that. You hear the same thing using a racing metaphor in Hebrews 12. Letting go of the hindrances, the sin that so easily entangles, let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. You hear the same thing from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Buffet my body, he says. I buffet my body. He's boxing. And I make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. This idea that you see of people who have a single-minded pursuit, a pursuit of God, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. You see it exemplified in some of the Old Testament heroes. I think of Caleb and Joshua. These men who, when they went as spies into the promised land, came back and said, God has promised us this land, and we will go through whatever it takes to get there. He will be faithful, and we will keep going. There were 10 others who didn't have that courage or that stomach and said, no, the people there are too big. We can't do it. But Caleb and Joshua had this single-mindedness, and they wouldn't be dissuaded by the fearful or the unfaithful. Hold that concept in your mind. We're going to keep revolving around it today, that single-minded pursuit. Just as a reminder, 1 Peter was written to a suffering church. 
It was a persecuted church. It was a church that was like a community of exiles, people who didn't feel like they fit in the world. And so Peter, in speaking to them, reminds them of their true identity. He reminds them of their true calling, and he's perpetually setting before them their hope. He's trying to encourage them to keep going because the reality is that the experience of suffering can knock people down. It can make them stop in this pursuit. It can take away that hope. They don't see it anymore. And when it takes away that hope, it becomes so easy to compromise identity and calling. If that hope is not clear, at some point you say, why does it matter? Why am I bothered? By the way, suffering is not the only thing that can take away that clear vision of hope. If you think about the parable of the soils, there's two different seeds that wither. The one that's planted and gets persecuted, but the one that's planted and has too much comfort and affluence, the worries about money and comfort, that one also gets choked out. Peter could have written these same things, in other words, to a comfortable and complacent church as he does to a suffering church. Peter's answer to this church, though, who's in danger of being knocked down because of suffering, is that you actually need to let those roots go deeper. I'm using the language of the parable of the soils rather than his language, but it's the same concept. You need to dig deeper. And Peter's language, it's you need to remember your hope. You need to settle down more deeply into your identity. You need to grasp more firmly your calling. He's basically saying you need to adopt that single-mindedness of Caleb who said, I see the promised land and nothing will stop me from getting there. I believe God is faithful and I'm going to keep going. You need that single-mindedness like Caleb had. He's basically saying, beware half-hearted Christianity. Beware half-hearted Christianity that comes from persecution but also beware half-hearted Christianity that comes from too much comfort. This single-mindedness, this focus on what's ahead, the desire to go deeper, lies behind our passage. Right before verse 13, Peter's been talking about the glory of the salvation that's to be revealed to us. And he says that it's so glorious that angels are on tiptoe wanting to look into it. The whole cosmos is gazing, saying, we want to see how this plays out. And in that context of the glory of the salvation to come, Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's like a coach reminding his team of the goal. It's like Caleb waking up his fellow Israelites about the promised land. He's saying, set your hope on that thing that's coming. He reminds them of what lies ahead. And you say, what's the thing that lies ahead? Grace that will be revealed when Jesus arrives. I want to hesitate for just a second. Because these are words that, because they're Christian words, we're all sort of comfortable with. But Peter's saying, stir yourself up. He uses very aggressive imagery. So polite in English, you know, preparing your minds for action. He literally says, gird the loins of your mind. Get your robe out of the way. 
Get your armor on. Set your hope on the grace to be revealed. He wants to stir us up and use every faculty to contemplate and study and lunge towards that hope. And what's the hope? The grace that comes when Jesus is revealed. And so the question that I have for y'all as we come into this passage this morning is what is the grace that you long for? What's the place in your heart where you go, I can't wait till Jesus touches this one with grace? What's the spot of brokenness or tiredness where you say, I want to see how grace works this one out? This is what he's calling us to consider. The grace that will be revealed with Jesus. And he says, put your hope on that. Remember, remember what I said that in the experience of either comfort or suffering. We can lose sight of the hope. And in losing sight of the hope, it becomes so easy to compromise the identity and to forget the calling. And he's saying to us, set your minds on the hope. Keep it in front of you. Use every faculty at your disposal. This single-mindedness necessarily means that we're going to have to jettison things that are hindrances. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We have desires, very simply, that aren't in line with that hope. You think of the glory of what it will mean when Jesus' grace touches your life in fullness and all that is broken is finally healed. You think of that glory and then you consider all the things that we long for and turn our lives to and you realize that there are so many things that we are aiming at that aren't that. There are things that need to be pitched overboard. There's things that have to be discarded. Paul says the same in Philippians 3. All the other things I had, he says, they were loss in terms of the, in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I counted them manure, dung, that I might know Christ. Things that need to be jettisoned because they're aiming all in the wrong directions. And that single-mindedness demands that we actually jettison these things. Again, you could keep playing with the athletic analogy. The Olympian who knows the goal is quite willing to give up junk food. The Olympian who knows the goal is quite willing to change the whole scope of life practices because the Olympian says this goal is too important. Staying up late to watch another TV show, another hamburger, these things are insignificant compared to that. And Paul's calling us to that willingness to jettison the things that go in the wrong directions. He's calling us to the single, I mean Peter, the single-minded pursuit. Instead, the call is actually to be conformed to something totally different. Look at 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Like the Olympian, every decision, every habit, every way of life, the whole character is dictated by the direction that you're going. I think we oftentimes don't consider the fact that our little decisions, the little decisions that grow into habits, the habits that become character, that those things are always aiming in a particular direction. They're aiming at something. We can't help but become like the thing that we are pursuing. If you then take that and you look at your life, at the things you're pursuing, and you go, oh goodness, I don't want to wake up 20 years from now looking like this thing that I'm pursuing right now. 
It's a terrifying thought when you examine some of the things that we pursue. But it's also a thought that should encourage us because if what's waiting for us is a Lord of grace, what then does it mean to make decisions in the moment that are steps towards grace, that are steps towards the character of Jesus? This is what Peter's calling us to. The Lord calling you on this path says, you should be like me. I'm holy. I'm calling you towards me. The closer you get, the more these things get purged, cleansed, washed away. And the Lord says, joyfully participate in this process. Move towards my holiness. We tend to shortchange the concept of holiness because we think about it only in the negative, the things that you're not allowed to do. Holiness is freedom from sexual sin. Holiness is freedom from coarse and ugly speech. Holiness is freedom from dishonesty. We talk about it in the negative. But if you read Leviticus, and I know that's a big if for most of us, if you read Leviticus 19 particularly, because that's what Peter's citing when he says, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you read Leviticus 19, you'll see that holiness does include those negative things, like abstain from this, abstain from that. But most of the description of holiness in Leviticus 19 is positive. It's things like honor your parents. It's pursue justice in your community. It's protect immigrants. It's leave the edges of your field unharvested so the poor have something to eat. Most of the descriptions of holiness in Leviticus 19 are actually about the things that we do that are positive and outward, they're things like protect people with disabilities. This is a part of God's understanding of holiness. And so when he calls us to this, if you're going to sort of use our analogy of athletics, when he calls us to this particular workout regimen that leads us in the direction, he's calling us to a life that looks like his character. And you say, what does that holiness look like? We'll examine the life of Christ going to those who are enemies, going to them to bring the kindness and the love of God, never compromising the truth, not afraid, but eager to show people the goodness of God. This is the sort of holiness that we're called to. The second part of this calling, and I need to speed up, I know, but the second part of this calling you see in verse 22, the first part of it is this, as you move towards this hope, have the character of God, his holiness. In the second part of it, in verse 22, you see this, then you need to love one another. Holiness and love. This is what it means to move in this direction, this sinking deep into our identity and calling. We need to love one another with sincere hearts. And that means, you see this at the beginning of chapter 2, getting rid of speech that hurts each other. Gossip and malice and slander the ugliness that comes from our mouth and in our minds and in our hearts, discarding that stuff. The last thing that he mentions as a pursuit is a desire and a longing for the word of the Lord. This is this idea of like infants long for spiritual milk. It's what the metaphor is about, is wanting the truth of God. You can bring these things together and you say, what does it mean to set our minds on this hope of grace revealed and then to pursue it? Pursuing it is saying, well, if I'm moving towards him, his character should be my own. If I'm moving towards him, his love for others should be my own. And if I'm moving towards him, his word becomes food to me. That's the picture that he paints. It's not 
I see the prize, and it's in heaven, and this world doesn't matter. In fact, seeing the prize, the revealed grace, makes every step we take in this world all the more significant. Everything matters in this way. Because everything is a step towards him or a step away. It's a call to a more rigorous and more serious Christianity. The alternative, living a half-hearted Christianity, our hopes set on a variety of scattered places, bouncing back and forth, being conformed to all the wrong desires, that sort of half-hearted Christianity, in Peter's words, is futile. It's empty. Of course we know that, right? How many things have we all pursued thinking that they would fulfill us? How many desires have we lunged for and gone after that left us actually just empty afterwards? We kid ourselves and we say, this time perhaps. Deep in the recesses of our hearts, we think maybe this time it will deliver. But at the end of the day, there is a futility to all these other pursuits. Peter's saying, we need to actually press on. He's calling us to remember something. You remember that angels on tiptoe to look at the salvation to be revealed? The entire purpose of the cosmos is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Stop for a second with that thought. The entire purpose of the cosmos is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He is the recapitulation of humanity and creation, the demonstration of God's love towards us. He is the king, the one who is crowned. The language of Philippians 2, upon him the Father has placed the name above every other name. The entire purpose of the cosmos is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And Peter's saying, do you remember that? Would you lunge toward that and pursue that single-mindedly with all of your heart? To try to hold on to anything else is so insignificant. It doesn't matter in the end. It disappears. It will be shaken, destroyed. Yet all those other things that we're called to set aside can be really difficult to set aside, right? It can be hard to actually let go of the belief that this thing will actually fulfill me. It's hard to set those things aside. No matter how many times they fail, we keep asking them to do what they cannot do to give us life. And Peter's saying, wake up. Wake up. Put your hope the only place it can be placed. Wake up. Quit kidding yourself that those other things will deliver. Fear God. Delight in him. Pursue his character. Learn to love like him. Delight in his word. The warning that lies behind 1 Peter is if you don't dig deep into this, suffering, or we could say complacency, will choke out the life that's within you. It's a stern call. And as I wrestled with this call this week, I thought of all the places where my own pursuit of God, where my own pursuits are half-hearted, and all the places where I need to be woken up and all the places where I need to learn to actually gaze at the hope that's set before us. But I don't want to end with this call. Because we, if we don't remember the entirety of the story, 
Peter's commands could be misunderstood as something like, you need to work harder for God. This is important. The analogy of the sports team fails in the end because the sports team analogy really is a story of effort and not grace. This is a passage about being single-minded, about discarding the hindrances, about lunging towards the character of God, about living out our identity in our calling and holiness, love, the delight in the word of God. But in the end, it's not a passage about our effort. It's actually a passage about grace. Look at verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope are in God, not us. It's important when we confront a passage like this with a stern call to actually pursue God more aggressively that we remember that our faith and our hope are not in ourselves. If you are tempted or prone to feel, I need to work harder and be better for God. If you're tempted like me with the thought that if only I did things right, it would all work out. It's important to remember this declaration that our faith and hope are where? Not in ourselves, but in God. Built into this picture that he tells is the story of the Jews being bought out of slavery. When he says you were ransomed, he's resting on this Jewish understanding, the Jewish understanding of the world needing to be bought out of slavery. This understanding sprang from their experience in Egypt where they realized that they were powerless to set themselves free. They needed a lamb to die so that they could be delivered. A son had to die so that they could be delivered. This is built into their history and their understanding of the world that humanity is enslaved. It was enshrined in their legal codes where God recognized that sometimes people in desperation sell themselves to other people. And he said, because I'm a God of freedom, you can ransom people out of slavery. You can buy them back. It can never be forever. Set them free. Built into this understanding, this Jewish idea, is that we are all enslaved, humanity, to our selfishness, sinful desires, to the devil, to death itself. But here he says, you have been ransomed. I don't want to end with this idea of your effort, because the story that Peter's talking about is not a story that says, if you are good enough, then God will be pleased with you. Instead, the story that he says is this. God's already set you free. He already showed you his favor. He's merely saying, come towards me in this. Walk towards me. He invites us into the pursuit of his promise, his own presence and grace. And it's true that for most of us, all of us, the desires that characterize Egypt still hang on us. We still feel them. And we're called to discard them, to let them go. But it's not so that you would be saved. And it's not so that God would have regard for you. 
It's because they don't make any sense anymore if you've actually already been ransomed. If you've been bought out of slavery, why return to the things that enslaved you before? If you've been bought out of slavery, why turn back to the captor rather than to the one who set you free? The call is a single-minded pursuit of the one that's already done these things for us. And that's why we say, even though the call is stern, in the end, our hope is not in our ability to accomplish it. Our hope is actually in the one who would do it for us. Amen.